the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Today's guest, John Chambers, went from being a dyslexic kid from West Virginia to one of the world's most successful business leaders. In his new book, Connecting the Dots, John shares leadership principles that have helped him outmaneuver competitors to grow a multi-billion dollar company. John is a former executive chairman and CEO at Cisco, where he served as the company's global leader for more than two decades. He has worked closely with government leaders from around the world, and he served on committees for two U.S. presidents, earning the first-ever Clinton Global Citizen Award, as well as the Woodrow Wilson Award for Corporate Citizenship. In 2016, he received the Edison Achievement Award. Harvard Business Review named him one of the best-performing CEOs in the world, and he was named Best Boss in America by 2020. Welcome, John. Thank you so much for joining us today. Joan, it's going to be a pleasure, and thank you very much. So, John, listening to that bio, it's amazing everything that you have accomplished. You went from being a dyslexic kid to a world leader in business. Let's start in the beginning. What was your childhood like? Well, I was very fortunate. I had two parents who were doctors. Uh, My mom broke a lot of the gender barriers in terms of valedictorian of her school, uh, an athlete, uh, a woman doctor, which at that time was rather unusual. And they had dual career paths where each one watched out for the other one. She taught me the emotional uh, connection side, and my dad was an unusually good business leader, and most doctors are notoriously not good at business, Mm -hmm. but he taught me a lot about being around the corners and getting transitions right. Growing up in West Virginia, I almost drowned when I was six years old, and this kind of teaches you about my parents. Uh, I got was fishing with my dad and I got swept away in the rapids and he told me not to get to it near the edge of the rocks and I fell in and it was at a place where people had drowned and one did later in life that I actually knew and as I was going through the rapids he started to chase me down the side of the uh, river yelling hold on to the fishing pole hold on to the fishing pole and and clearly each time I got my head above water, he was still yelling at me to hold on to the fishing pole. It's an ugly fishing pole, maybe cost $5, black, et cetera. But if, if he was concerned about the fishing pole, I held on to it with both hands, and he got a couple hundred yards below me, swam out and got me and pulled me to the side. And he taught me at that time one of the most important lessons in life is when you're caught up in a period that is really challenging or even life-threatening, importance not to panic, Stay very focused on what you're doing. Don't try to swim against the tide or against the current. uh, And then just work your way over to the side. And then at six years old, he didn't tell mom this. He put me back in the water and and let me swim it on my own. (laughs) And uh, he taught me so much about life and lessons. And West Virginia was the top state in the union in terms of chemical industry, top in coal mining. And we got disrupted and fell to one of the bottom states. So I also learned in West Virginia what happens if you don't change, disrupt or be disrupted, if you will. John, how do you think that that lesson impacted the way you handled situations throughout your career? Oh, it's huge, Joan. Basically, most of the time, my wife would say almost all the time, uh, when something really challenging happens, I don't overreact to it. I'm realistic on how much of it was self-inflicted and how much of it was market-driven. 
Uh, I then plan for how long it's going to last and how do you react to it, paint the picture of what we look like when we come out of it, then communicate appropriately to the constituencies, whether it's shareholders, employees, the market, customers, et cetera. So I'm a believer in an innovation playbook, and life's experience teach you how to deal with it. I'm also a dyslexic, and once you overcome major challenges in life, first, you never laugh about anybody else. Uh, but secondly, you learn how to take a weakness and potentially make it a strength. And so it impacts you in a major way. Uh, and it has to do with what you talk about all the time. It's change your attitude and, and change your life. If you have the courage to deal with your challenges and learn you can do it, then you know how to deal with the challenges in the future. So, John, when you joined Cisco, the company had 400 employees and one product, $1.2 billion in revenue. When you left, 20 years later, it was a multinational tech conglomerate with revenues of $47 billion, and it was a leader in areas from cybersecurity to self-driving cars. You turned more than 10,000 employees into millionaires, more than any company in history. So everything that you've been describing to this point, was that your philosophy for reinvention? It was. It, it, it has to go that if you watch what happens in West Virginia where we didn't change and wonderful people, and I'm still very much committed to this state and trying to help them become a startup state, but because we didn't change, we got left behind. And it happened in Boston. I route 128 around Boston used to be the high-tech center of the world. We couldn't even spell Silicon Valley. And yet the mini computer industry got completely destroyed and companies like Wang and, and Data General and DEC with 40,000 to 110,000 employees vanished. So it's taught me in life that you have to identify market transitions, especially when they're combined with technology and they wait for no one. But it also taught me that if you see them coming and you have the courage to be bold and realize with that you're going to fail periodically, there's almost nothing you can't achieve. So deeply embedded in what helped lead Cisco and to take a company from $70 million in sales to $48 billion was was a real rush. And, and to share the success both with the employees and our shareholders and to win almost every corporate social responsibility award there, there was from both Democratic administrations of Clinton, Obama, and Republican administrations of uh, Condi Rice, Secretary of State, with President Bush. Uh, we we basically, I think, did a very good job on both the business front, but also on the corporate social responsibility giving back front, which I know you're a huge believer in as well, Jen. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and John, you say that the winners won't be the biggest or the richest players, but the ones who can connect the dots What does it mean to connect the dots? It's the ability to see transitions coming and then deal with them both from a positive and realistic on the challenges. So connecting the dots that your viewership would really, I think, understand is I was on the board of Walmart and we saw Amazon coming, yet we couldn't out-execute them on combining an online world with a physical world. And in 21 years, they moved past the value of Walmart in terms of a public company. Tesla did the same thing to GM in 14 years. Uber, a car replacement, not a taxi cab, but a shared asset replacement for automobile purchases, moved past GM in seven years. 21, 14, 7, they're going to get tighter. And so you've got to understand how quickly these changes occur and understand they wait for no one. And the major mistake you can actually make is doing the right thing for too long. Because then you get stuck again, and then you end up getting left behind. You get left behind, and the brutality of it can be loss of job. It can be loss Mm -hmm. of the state's leadership. It can be a nation's leadership. And I think we're, as a nation, are being challenged about we're no longer an innovation nation. We're not in the top ten in the world, according to Bloomberg. And we are almost taking for granted that if we continue to do what we're doing, the right thing, that it won't result in a problem for us, when in fact it will. Nations such as France and India, which you would have never thought of in terms of innovation or great uh, place to do business, are blowing past us. And, you know, John, I want to point out that we're talking about large corporations, but everything that you're describing can be applied to a person on any level. I started this work. I created a company, John, when I was 43 years old after raising two children and getting divorced and going through some extensive personal losses. And that's where this brand and company came from. And I started it without a dime of personal investment 
and I've been in the block since day one. And it has been solely because I have done the things that you have described. I've, I'm totally reinventing myself on a regular basis, thinking outside of the box. I, I like to say that I'm a master of spinning gold out of straw. And I think it, it comes down to everything that you're describing. And I, and I bring that up because I want people to understand whether you're a CEO of a corporation like Cisco or you're a, a single entrepreneur like myself, these principles apply. They absolutely do. And I think they apply to leadership, period. Uh, if you're a parent and you know this, and, and congratulations on raising two great kids mm-hmm. uh, as a, a single parent, that is hard to do. And the ability to really deal with your challenges in life do determine more who you are than your successes. Jack Welch taught me that uh, on it. But if you were to use the example of what I'm doing now with JC2 Ventures, I get to see every startup in the world. And it is so exciting being a coach and a mentor and a strategic partner with them, even more than an investor. And you suddenly see a company that does secure phones, that your phone could be tapped anytime. Uh, this company has the ability to protect that and its shield capability. But 17 people all of a sudden having a chance to become a major exciting force in the security industry and watching them grow and scale. So it's that replicatable innovation playbook that I ran at Cisco doing 180 acquisitions uh, while as CEO there, or what I did in country digitization with countries like Israel and France and uh, uh, India with the government leaders in each of those locations, or now what I'm doing and selecting the startups. And instead of doing it in a single geography, trying to do it across all of the major states in the U.S., a subset of that with a model that can work again and again. So I had the chance to to play a small role in changing the world once with the Internet and Cisco changing literally the way you work, live, learn, and play. And secondly, now doing it with startups as startup companies, startup states, startup nations, and startup world. That That is exciting. And, and to the point that you're making so effectively, you've got to have the ability to dream and be bold. And you've got to be willing to disrupt yourself and get outside your comfort zone. John, do you think this is a good time to start a business? I think it is a very good time to start a business, but I think our government, and I used to keep government as far away as possible, has to create a much more business conducive environment. Uh, We've got so much regulations for startups and so many hurdles going against us, including many people having very large college loans still outstanding at a time that uh, is so key. And we've got to be progressive on our immigration strategy. Startups in Fortune 500, 40% of them were founded by immigrants or uh, second generation of uh, immigrant families. Same thing with startups. So do I think it's a good time? Yes. Do I think we need to put this on steroids and ramp it up by a factor of three to four fold, yes. And I think it requires government and business and citizens working together. We have a crisis coming at us. Mm-hmm. The high-tech industry will destroy more jobs through digitization and automation in the large companies than large companies will add. And so if you don't get the startup engine going well, we're going to leave behind a lot of America. So I think it's a good time. I think we can make it great. And I hope that my book and, and being an example of this will help help others say, how do we do it on more of a scale basis? So, John, you work with startups, and you've shared a few things that you think business owners need to do in order to succeed. What are some of the other biggest mistakes that you believe business owners make today? Well, some of them are very basic. Uh, In the role of a business owner, regardless of whether the company is two people or 10,000 people, is strategy and vision for the company, develop, recruit, and retain the leadership team to do that, culture and communication of the above. Mistakes that business owners might surprise you as many of them don't understand how important culture is. You never have a strong company that lasts without a strong culture. You may like the culture, you may not, but culture is a huge component part of the success of a company, almost equivalent to strategy and vision. And I enjoy teaching that to the young companies. And then when you see the CEO, she or he get it, your eyes just get so excited that they really understand the power. Communications. You didn't have to be a good communicator in the Jack Welch era who was in generation in front of me. Uh, Jack was very good on vision and strategy, great with teams uh, and high expectations for the team, but not world-class in communications. Today, you've got to be able to listen to social media. You've got to be able to communicate with your employees and customers. You've got to realize that the way you're communicating with your customers today probably isn't achieving their goals, and you've got to have the courage to change. So 
culture and communications are probably two elements that are even uh, more important. John, you wrote that a friend once told you that you can't describe a company or leader as great until that person has gone through a near-death experience and come back. Why do you believe that some people are able to survive such an experience while others give up? I think sometimes you survive because of your upbringing. Sometimes you survive because of your friends and family around you or even your children and how important it is that you have to get through it. And sometimes you survive just because you you know you either disrupt or you're going to get disrupted and you're unwilling to suffer the consequences if not. Most companies that get knocked on their tail don't get back up. Mm-hmm. That friend was actually Jack Welch who told me during the 90s when we were just becoming the most valuable company in the world and we created 10,000 millionaires at Cisco and shared the wealth with our employees and our shareholders were happy. We had the best customer satisfaction in the industry. He said, John, you have a good company. I said, Jack, what does it take? to have a great one. He said, a near-death experience. Mm-hmm. He called me up after the dot-com bubble of 2001, and he said, John, you now have a great company, and you're now a great leader. I said, Jack, it doesn't feel like it. My shareholders are upset with me. My employees are questioning my ability to lead. Some are even saying, should I be leading Cisco, et cetera. And it's really painful. And he said, no, John, this was your best leadership year ever. And I said to him, Jack, you're probably the only person that's ever going to say that to me. And by the way, he was. Uh, mm-hmm. on it. But he was right. It's how you handle your setbacks there and determines who you are as a parent, as a leader, as an individual. And all of us are going to get knocked down. The key is, can you get up, know what knocks you down, develop your path to how you're going to do things differently so you don't get knocked down again and then go forward. You know, I agree with that statement because the people that I have met through doing this work, the the ones who have been knocked down, are the ones that come back stronger. They're the ones that learn the important life lessons. So when I read that, I said, amen, because to me, that is exactly what I have learned from the years of doing this. So who were your role models? Who are the people that inspired you to be great? You know, it's interesting. My parents clearly play a key role in it. My mom taught me the emotional side, but it, it there was never an ambition to be great. The, the ambition was just to make a difference. Mm-hmm. And uh, my dad clearly taught me to see around corners and how you work through it. It may surprise you. I've I've, I've learned so much from leaders that your your listeners will will recognize, but leaders that were just normal people as well. From a Shimon Perez out of Israel, who taught me so much about leadership and leadership being lonely and how you can make a difference in peace in the Middle East by giving back and startups. Uh, to watching Emmanuel Macron have the courage to try to change France's direction and Prime Minister Modi uh, attempting 1.3 billion people to make India a startup nation and double the per capita income every seven to ten years. All of those had a very much an aspect in it. But where you're leading me, I agree with you, and it's one of the things I'm concerned about. I'm a huge believer in gender equality, and my mom taught me that, and we had 30% of our directors at Cisco being female before anybody even thought of a number like that, just because it was the right thing to do. And it's all about talent. But I think often what people miss is people willing to invest in them and people willing to be a coach and a advisor uh, for females. And it's something I, I think we have to do differently. You know from your background uh, it is much more difficult for a female entrepreneur to raise money than a male entrepreneur with the exact same idea, and maybe only gets a third of the money funded to it. And what is it, 60 to 70% of the female leaders will tell you they do not have a advisor coach that, that will spend the time with them, where I had the luxury of having quite a few that helped make a difference on that. So I think the importance of gender equality and, and how we we balance that, because diverse teams will beat teams that look alike. And when 54% of your population in this country uh, is college-educated female, we have to do a much better job of creating the right environment for success there. John, what piece of advice would you offer to someone who's starting out? Dream big and be bold. Know that you could fail and don't view failure as a, a negative result. Most of the startups I invest in have failed before. I've clearly achieved more success than I ever dreamed was possible and tried to give back as much as I can, but I clearly have had failures along the way, and I openly talk about them. And I learned from the beginning, being dyslexic, if you can overcome issues in life and you can realize you can overcome them, you can do it again and again. But if there's one concept, I think 
as an individual and as a nation, we need to be dreaming big again and putting the U.S. number one in terms of innovation, putting a person on the moon again. So those are kind of my thoughts. I'm a dreamer, but I'm a believer in making dreams come true. The book is Connecting the Dots, Lessons for Leadership in a Startup World. John, in about 30 seconds or less, what's the takeaway? The takeaway is leadership. You can learn innovation models. You can do again and again. You've got to realize if you don't change, you'll get left behind. The worst recipe for the future is to continue to do the right thing too long. Have the courage to reinvent yourself, form relationships for life, especially with your customers, and realize that you can learn from everybody around you, build great things. John, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing some strategies to help us reinvent ourselves and win in today's world. Your insight is invaluable, and I'm so happy that you were here to share it with us. So thank you. It was my honor, and thank you for making it so easy. Uh, Not bad for a person you said from New Jersey, is that right? (laughs) That's right. Every once in a while, we get it right, John. We do, and and same thing for a person from West Virginia. It's about (laughs) handling your challenges in life. It's been fun. I love the interview. Again, thank you for you giving back. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. How much can the right foods do for you? A lot more than weight control. The right foods can increase your energy, improve your outlook, and strengthen your body's natural defenses. What foods can do all that? Primo Health Solutions will show you using metabolic typing. This remarkable program lets your body tell you what it needs to work best. Call them today at 347-903-7030. That's 347-903-7030. Or go to PrimoHealthSolutions.com. Using metabolic typing, Primo Health Solutions will let your body work best. Are you getting tension headaches while wearing your face mask or feel like you can't take a deep enough breath? Hi, I'm Jill Merriman, a doTERRA certified essential oil specialist and an international business consultant and trainer. I help people improve their overall well-being with doTERRA essential oils because they're safe, natural, and effective. In fact, these wholesale price products are CPTG, which means certified pure therapeutic grade. They're considered medical grade and beyond organic. Actually, doTERRA means gift of the earth, which is fitting since their essential oils are absolutely pure. There is nothing added, nothing taken away. They're safe for expected moms, children, the elderly, and everyone in between, pets included. Now more than ever, I've been reaching for my oils to help alleviate daily issues and help improve my health and wellness. I found that by using doTERRA's respiratory blend to help open my airways, I'm able to tolerate my mask for longer periods of time. This proprietary blend made up of eight different essential oils is a powerhouse oil combination. I dilute it with water in a small spray bottle, ready to use with my mask on the go. To support my respiratory system at night, I also diffuse this blend while I sleep. I know these two practices have helped me breathe easier during these scary and chaotic times. To learn more, email me at jill at jillmerriman.com for a complimentary 30-minute wellness consultation. By doing so, you'll also receive a free respiratory blend mask spray. Start caring for your mind and body today, the doTERRA way. In today's supercharged do-it-now world, convenience is key. Now you can listen to Conversations with Joan at a time that's best for you. Simply visit your favorite podcast site. New shows drop every Monday. Start your week on a positive note. Listen to Conversations with Joan. to live a happy, productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach On Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining us today is Eileen Lashinsky, the founder and creator of Find Body Freedom, a program developed for women who want to change their relationship with their bodies. For over three decades, Eileen battled with her own issues with body image, weight, and her relationship with food. After trying every diet on the market, She realized that the answers to her struggles were right inside her body. Since then, Eileen has been working with women to guide them to discover their own innate body wisdom and to find body freedom. Welcome, Eileen. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Joan, for having me. I'm so glad to be here. So, Eileen, I have heard you use the term body bully to describe how a person may view oneself. What does this mean? Can Mm -hmm. you explain this to us, body bully? Yes, um... Well, let's think of bullies. There are some people who bully others. 
And um, there are some of us women, though, who have taken that concept and have uh, started to or continue to bully ourselves. We yell at ourselves. We shame ourselves. We um, disparage ourselves because of the size and the shape of our bodies. We have become, for some of us, many of us, body bullies. And, you know, I'm listening to you and, and I'm realizing that, you know, we speak to ourselves in ways that we would never talk to another human being. So what is the language that a body bully would say to describe him or herself? What are they, what's that inner talk? What do they say about themselves? Well, you're absolutely right. Um, We would, most of us would never talk to another human being the way we talk to ourselves about our bodies. And the language is along the lines of we look in the mirror or we catch ourselves walking by a storefront, a glass storefront, and we don't like what we see, so we say, you're fat. We say, you have no willpower after we've just eaten what? An extra graham cracker, and that's part of my personal story, but that's for another uh, topic. Um, we, you have no willpower. You have no self-control. No one will ever want you. No one will ever hire you. No one will take you seriously. Even things that uh, we consider innocuous, uh, statements that we might consider innocuous, such as, I was bad, I ate dessert, statements like that come from the mouth of a person who is a body bully. Eileen, you've been so open and honest about your journey. And you even just said that, you know, this was the way that you used to speak to yourself. So how were you able Mm -hmm. to turn this around? What advice can you share with us to help us change those thoughts? Um, Well, two things, actually. Um, One, you already mentioned. Uh, I want to say, firstly, though, that there are some of us who don't even know we're doing it. It's become so much a part of our inner dialogue and so much a part of the culture. It's a part of women's speak, and I'm putting those two words, women's speak, in quotation marks, which basically is acceptable body bashing that women do uh, to themselves, and they talk about themselves like that in groups of women. For example, when going out for lunch or, you know, even prior to an exercise class. Um, so um, the, the point here is that uh, the very first step is becoming aware. Uh, we have to become aware that we have these thoughts. We're saying these really abusive, self-abusive things about our bodies. So we become aware. And then you said something also very important earlier, that we need to be able to ask ourselves if we ever, ever say these things to another human being. And I'm going to take it one step further. Would we ever, ever say those kinds of things to a child? And the answer, of course, for the vast majority of us women would be absolutely not. We wouldn't say these things to, in particular, a child. But that's exactly what we're doing. There's a child that lives inside of us that is taking these messages in. And she is hiding because she feels so unloved. She feels so fearful. She feels so ashamed of herself. So, you know, we become aware of the thoughts. And then it behooves us, Joan, and we've had this conversation before, we have to change those thoughts to something that is more neutral, if not positive, at least more neutral. What would you like to leave our listeners with? What would be the takeaway from this discussion? We're the only ones who can change that part of us. Um, And I think, to be honest with you, many of us have been waiting for a culture shift. So if I don't see these messages out there that show me that I'm only lovable and acceptable and hireable and all of those things, if I look uh, look a certain way, if those things shift, I'll be better. I'll be okay. I will feel like I can have self-acceptance. That's not true. What happens is the shift has to come from us. And it has to end its work, Joan, and you and I both know this. It's work. 
we have to be willing to say, I am committing to not abusing myself anymore. I am committing by doing that to future generations of women who are going to feel much more at home in their skin, much more at home in their bodies. And to me, that's our birthright. So it starts with us. Eileen, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about this topic or Eileen and her work, you can visit findbodyfreedom.com. Or to hear more from Eileen, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Eileen. We'll be right back. This is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Whether you're managing a work team, heading up an organization, or being a parent to your child, Effective leadership is crucial to achieving your desired outcome. For decades, today's guest, Dr. Ken Blanchard, has influenced the day-to-day management of people and companies. Through his speeches, consulting services, and books, Dr. Blanchard is one of the most influential leadership experts in the world. His 1982 classic, The One Minute Manager, has sold more than 13 million copies and remains on bestseller list today. Welcome, Dr. Blanchard. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Joan. It's good to be with you all. So, Ken, we're all leaders, be it at work or at home. We have a job to do, and we work toward that end. What do you believe are some of the biggest mistakes we make when trying to lead? Well, I think the biggest mistake that people make is that uh, they uh, go from a tell you what to do, you know, this is what I want you to do, and then they disappear and go to a delegating leadership style until you make a mistake, and then they fly in, make a lot of noise, dump on everybody, and fly out. The biggest thing about leadership is that you need to constantly be observing what people are doing so you can praise progress, so you can redirect them. You can't just disappear. So, Ken, what can result from being an ineffective leader? Uh, One of the things that can result, of course, is turnover. The biggest reason that people leave jobs is they they want to leave their manager and uh, so performance is going to be held back you know all kinds of things uh, can happen so it's really so important whether you're leading at home or an organization or in a, a nonprofit or community you know uh, is that's why I think the one minute manager uh, helped people because it wasn't all that complicated you know uh, I believe in the 80-20 rule you know of what you want to have happen comes from about 20% of what you focus on. And so the first thing you need to remember as a a leader or manager is, are the goals clear? Are people clear in what they're being asked to do? Uh, All good performance starts with clear goals. And uh, and then uh, you want to observe and wander around and see if you can catch them doing something right. Our second secret is one-minute praising which is, you know, uh, uh, saying, gee, I just saw what you did and the progress you're making. I just want to tell you how, how good it makes me feel and uh, and uh, I appreciate your efforts and all. I think people love to get caught doing things right. Well, Ken, we have so many external stresses in the world today that we didn't have when you first wrote your book, The One Minute Manager. So now you've updated your book. What have you found to be some of the biggest changes that impact the way we interact with others? The whole supervision is much more dynamic now, and and uh, people are coming and going, and and they're in different uh, parts of the country, and so we really put that uh, into play. And also, uh, I felt as I read it that it was a little top down, even though the secrets are important. Uh, so that I think people really want a, a, a leader who is kind of believes in side by side leadership rather than top-down, you know, so that doesn't mean that you have their job, but that you know that they're they're got your back covered and they're on your team. And then the, the one of the biggest changes, we changed the third secret, which was the one-minute reprimand to one-minute redirects, mm-hmm. which is much, much more consistent with the side-by-side relationship. So if you observe somebody and it's not progressing the way you wanted or the way you had envisioned with the goals, 
you say to them, gee, here's what I'm observing. Uh, you know, what do you think? Are you observing the same thing? And, you know, what I want to know is if that's true, how can I get you back on track and all? And so uh, it's, it's constantly being there to praise progress as well as redirect efforts when they're in the wrong direction. An effective leader is only as good as the people that he or she is surrounded by. So how can a good leader get others to tap into their potential? What advice do you offer to help someone empower another person? Well, you know, first of all, you want to be looking for good people. But uh, you also, if you've got a good vision and a set of values for the company, uh, you really want to make sure that people will fit into your culture and your team and what you're what you're trying to do. And then what you got to do is look at what are their goals and objectives? You know, what are their job responsibilities? And recognize that you not only want different strokes for different folks, but you want different strokes for the same folks on different parts of their job. Because one of the biggest problems I see in managers and parents and all, I see use the same leadership style all the time. Well, you know, if you've got somebody who's really good at the financial part of their job, well, you can probably delegate there, but maybe they're not so good at the interpersonal. Well, you better work with them more closely there. So you have to use not only different strokes for different folks, but different strokes for the same folks on different parts of their job. Ken, one of the things that I notice a lot with people that I come in contact with, and, it, and it's something that I find very frustrating, when you're dealing with that person who always has an excuse for something, there's always a reason why he or she didn't achieve the goal or, or do what was promised. What advice do you offer to help leaders help that person overcome the mindset of of always coming up with that excuse, to, to move yeah. past that? Well, one thing is you can tell your group we have a no-excuse policy, you know. If not working, don't tell me the reason why you know, unless it's something that we can fix. But I don't want an excuse. Let's turn the thing around. Uh, and if you got somebody who keeps on excusing, you can kind of say to them, you know, look, I just don't appreciate this, you know. Uh, and if they keep on doing it, then my friend Gary Ridge, who's the president of WD40, says, you might have to share them with the competition. Well, you know, and I find that these people usually live their life that way. It's not yeah. just at work. It's There's an excuse for everything in their yeah, life. You're really right. People are finding excuses. They find excuses for everything. Ken, you've been doing this for a long time. From everything you've learned over the years, if you could sum it all up, what makes a strong leader? Well, I think the, what really makes a strong leader is, is three things from my standpoint. And I call it, the first one is the servant part of leadership, which is the, the elevator speech is, it's not about you, you know. And so the great leaders realize it's not about them, it's about the people that they gather around them. The second is the steward, which is you don't own anything. You don't own your people, you don't own your, your finances, you don't know. It's all on loan. And how are you stewarding what's on loan to you? And then finally, uh, I talk about the shepherd, which is every human being is important. And uh, I think that the people who are really uh, good leaders have kind of that servant heart and realize it's not about them. Everything's on loan. And boy, everybody's important. The book is The New One Minute Manager. If you would like to get more information about Ken and his work, you can visit his website, kenblanchard.com. Ken, thank you so much for being here and for sharing strategies to help us be effective leaders. I want to give you the final word. What's the takeaway for our listeners? Well, I think the takeaway is uh, it's not about you. It's about your people. And how do you bring out the best in them? Uh, so uh, you work for them. They don't work for you uh, once the goals are set. So what can you do to help them win? What can you do to help them be the best that they can possibly be? Ken, again, thank you so much for being here. And I look forward to having you come back. Well, good. Thank you so much, Joan. Take care of yourself. We'll be right back. If you're like me, you're networking more than before in this new virtual environment and filling your previous travel time with more and more virtual meetings. However, are you satisfied with your networking results? If not, 
I'd like to share with you some networking tips for increasing your sales even during a pandemic. The key to your success in sales in a virtual environment or virtually any environment is to follow a process. Networking is a methodology, whether in person or online. Analyze your networking results. If you're not happy with your results, you must do something different. Set a written goal for who you want to meet, how many prospects you want to meet, and why. It's all about the power of intention. Develop a positive attitude for networking success. Remember networking etiquette. Still arrive on time. In a virtual environment, remember to check your audio and video settings so that your fellow networkers can see and hear you clearly. If you're going to miss a meeting appointment, notify them that you cannot attend or will be late. Maintain and sustain your network. Do your research in advance, if you can, of the person you'll be meeting in a one-on-one. Give referrals, give your time, give tips, and you'll get in return. Leverage all of these tools you have and you'll see more wins. If you'd like to learn more, feel free to reach out to me, Bertha Robinson, at 732-705-5060 or visit my website at staronprofessional.com. We are such a go, go, go society that it is so easy to get stressed out these days. One of the best ways to reduce your stress instantly is to bring your attention to the breath. Hi, I'm Carrie Carapito from KNP Holistic Health and Fitness. I'm a holistic health and lifestyle coach, yoga teacher, and Reiki master. Yogis have been practicing pranayama or breathing exercises for thousands of years. Deep breathing is one of the best ways to lower stress in the body. Here is a pranayama for you to try the next time you are feeling stressed. Bring your attention to your breath. Breathe in deeply, really filling the bottom of the lungs with air. Then exhale nice and slow, getting all that air out from the bottom of the lungs. Breathe in again and count. One, two, three, four. Then exhale. One, two, three, four. Breathe in again and count. One, two, three, four, five. Then exhale. One, two, three, four, five. Try to make the length of the exhale double your inhale time. For example, inhale for a count of four, then exhale for a count of eight. Continue practicing this breath until you feel more relaxed. Want to learn more about pranayama? Visit my website at knpholistic.com to book your appointment today. Many of our services are available online. Namaste. to your health. Joining me is Nick Ortner, who's here to talk about how tapping can be used to address a range of issues, including anxiety, chronic pain, addiction, weight control, and stress management. Nick is CEO of The Tapping Solution and author of the book, The Tapping Solution, A Revolutionary System for Stress-Free Living. Welcome, Nick. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me on, Joan. Nick, I've been hearing a lot about tapping lately. Is this something new? What exactly is tapping? Yeah, absolutely. I know some listeners are thinking we're talking about tap dancing. <laughs> well, we better clear it up. Uh, tapping, otherwise known as EFT, um, is is actually a technique that's been around for over 30 years. It was, I think just now it's gaining the momentum and we're, we're having the research come in that's really validating how this process works. And uh, we call it tapping because we are literally tapping on endpoints of meridians of our body while saying certain statements, while focusing on stress, anxiety, anger, pain in our bodies, really whatever is going on in our bodies that's keeping us stuck, slowing us down. And uh, what the latest research is showing, you know, the reason why we're tapping on our face and body is that as we do this tapping, we're actually sending a calming signal to the amygdala in the brain. And a lot of your listeners probably know that the amygdala is that little almond-shaped fight-or-flight response in the brain. It's really the stress center. It's when you're angry, when you're upset, when you're overwhelmed, that's the part of your brain that is firing. And what the tapping is doing is really calming the amygdala, balancing the brain, often rewiring the brain, and providing, at least in my experience and those of thousands of people around the world, incredible results. Now, Nick, I can understand the correlation between tapping and physical pain, but how does it yeah. work with addiction or financial issues or even weight management? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great question. Where it's working with these issues is it's really going to the stress center. And if we look at something like weight and, and for example, example cravings, now tapping is very effective in minimizing, reducing, and eliminating cravings. And what we often find 
when we start digging deeper and people say, you know, I come home from work and I just need to have that tub of ice cream or the bag of chips or, you know, that, all that chocolate, it's emotional eating and it's eating that's often related to stress, stress that they're experiencing at work, stress that they've experienced their whole lives. When we dig deeper and ask people about weight loss and cravings, they'll say things like, well, you know, when I was growing up, the way that I was rewarded was with candy. So I'm now established in my mind. I didn't realize it until we explored this, that the way I reward myself after a long day of work is to eat candy. So what the tapping does is we can actually calm that nervous system response, that stress response, and really gain more clarity about the issue. I think one of the beautiful things about the tapping process is that when you do it on something you're struggling with, there's a tremendous amount of clarity that comes up. And, you know, if we look at that mechanism of calming the amygdala, calming the stress response, and we look at when we have our best ideas, when we have our inspiring thoughts and actions, it's... You know, people will say things like, well, I was in the shower and it just inspiration hit me or I was taking a bath and I, I saw the answer to this problem or I was walking in nature. So we have these insights when we're relaxed, when we can look at an issue, a challenge object objectively from some distance and feel some peace around it. And the tapping really allows that to happen with weight loss, with finances. You know, when someone gets a bill, it's often an instant stress response, right? They mm -hmm. get the bill, oh my gosh, here it is again, I can't believe it. The amygdala is firing, the heart is racing. And in those places, we don't make good decisions. You know, really from a physiological basis, when the heart is racing, when we're looking at that bill, when we're anxious, the blood is literally flowing away from our brains into our arms and legs because the body's mobilizing for stress, for fight or flight, for doing something. So we're in those states and we don't come up with creative ideas. We don't come up with solutions. We don't make the decisions that can help us really stand out in the world and follow our passions and dreams and be financially successful. Is tapping similar to acupuncture? Yeah, I think they're, you know, I would call them cousins. Um, as, you know, it's sort of acupuncture without the needles, which a lot of people are a big fan of mm -hmm. who don't like the needles. And acupuncture, which I personally love. I get acupuncture myself. I find it very relaxing and helpful. Uh, you know, it often doesn't have the emotional component. So you're usually laying down in a bed and, you know, if you're in pain, they'll treat for that or whatever else you have going on. But you're not discussing your issues. You're not talking about what might be going on. And that's where the real power lies in tapping. Uh, for pain relief, which I mentioned a couple times as an example, acupuncture has proved very effective, as has tapping. And I think that's working through the same mechanisms as acupuncture, plus it's adding the emotional component. So, Nick, very briefly, what are the steps to tapping? Yeah, so there's a couple of really basic steps. One is determine what you want to tap on. So if you're in physical pain, you say, okay, my back hurts, that's my target. If you're angry about something, anxious, you're annoyed, that's your target. The more specific you can be about it, the better. You don't want to just say life is stressful because uh, that can be hard to focus on. So a specific target, we give it a number on a 0 to 10 scale in intensity so we can check in later on with how it's doing. And then we go through the tapping process. So we start by tapping on the side of the hand. It's called the karate chop point. Below the pinky on the outside of the hand, use one hand to tap on the other and whatever hand feels comfortable, and just tap continuously and repeat after me. Even though I have this pain in my body, I choose to relax now. And we're going to do that two more times. This is a setup statement. We're bringing the issue forward. You can change the language even though I'm angry, even though I'm anxious, even though I'm upset about this. So even though I'm upset about this, I love, accept, and forgive myself now. And again, we're just accepting ourselves or relaxing with the issue. And the third statement, even though I have this issue, I choose to relax now. And then we tap through the points. The first point is the eyebrow point. Inside of the eyebrow, right where the hair ends and it meets the nose, you can take two fingers of one hand, you can use either hand, or tap on both sides. The meridians run down both sides of the body. And you're tapping five to seven times gently and just focusing on your issue and what your challenge is and repeating out loud this issue. Now to the side of the eye, not at the temple, a little further in next to the eye. Again, one side or both sides, this issue. Under the eye, this issue. Next point is under the nose, this issue I'm dealing with. Under the mouth, above the chin, below the lip, and that little crease in there, this issue. We have three points left. If you feel for the collarbone, the little bone sticking out, just go down an inch, out to each side about an inch. You can tap with all ten fingers of both hands, again, focusing on your challenge this issue underneath the armpit, three inches underneath the armpit, either side of the body, this issue. 
And the last point where we do look a little bit like monkeys, right at the top of the head, right in the crown with five fingers, this issue. And then we take a deep breath and let it go. And that's what's considered one basic round of tapping. Uh, after every round, we do two things. We check in on the original number, see how it's shifted, and then we also pay attention to what else came up, what other ideas, memories, insights that might be related to the issue. Now, that was one really fast round. Mm -hmm. So, and as you're learning the points, you might not get other ideas and inspiration, but if you do, five, 10, 15 minutes of tapping, get comfortable with the process, you'll see that not only do the issues shift very quickly, I mean, often shockingly quickly, but you get other ideas, you get other clarity as to what's going on exactly. Nick, how often must this be done for healing? Do you do it once and then if the symptoms go away, you're in essence cured or do you need to do this repeatedly? Yeah, it's such a great question. You know, it, everyone is, is so different. Uh, we certainly have what we call the one-minute miracles and, or five-minute miracles where someone's had back pain for a long time. They try this. Wow, it's gone. It shifts, and it never comes back. Other times, it takes longer. You know, when you do this deep work and then you go back to your life, if you go back to the same patterns and stressors and habits, well, and if they're contributing to the pain or the challenges in your life, that can be a challenge. So I know for me personally, when I first discovered it, I did a lot of tapping in the beginning, and I did tapping really to sort of heal old wounds, clear out memories, things that I had not let go of from the past. Once that was done, then it became more about my daily living. You know, what's the maintenance tapping that I need to do? And now it might be, okay, I'm stressed about something that's going on with work, or I'm overwhelmed, and I can use the tapping sort of on a maintenance basis in the same way that you might use meditation on a maintenance basis. Nick, thank you for being here. Oh, thanks so much for having me. joining us, I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications, LLC.